think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 57 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 58th episode. I'm Laura Carboneau. You're always so spunky with your voice then. Well, you gotta lead in strong Whoa, again. Hello! It's like having your granola in the morning. It's just how you how you just structure yourself for, for a good day like or a, a good episode. Women eating salad equivalent. Women laughing eating salad. Ah, oh, goddamn. Yeah, yeah, or what, yogurt. They also, they also love laughing eating yogurt. That's the podcasting equivalent, I would say, is being being too energetic for the opening of your podcast. Well, I think people are, are just going to have to... I mean, if, if they've been with us this far <laughs> on the, the upbeat opening, I think they've, they've learned to, to deal with it. Learn to embrace your voice. Okay, well, now instead of uh, the classic, after I do the upbeat opening, we then do a riff instead of a tan saying who he is. <laughs> uh, also a classic, a classic bit. Good good show it's good so thank you Etan, for for joining us as always here in the studio you know uh, I, I try my best <laughs> so um we are back after the first well i guess the second sitting week because we had that we had an episode of the other first sitting week so here we are back again after what's been a fairly energetic week in parliament um and i think it's impossible to start off a discussion of this week in parliament which is you know kind of part of our mandate here uh, without discussing uh, the conservatives in question period again, who uh, spent most of the week and most of their questions on um, asking Ralph Goodale and Justin Trudeau in turn uh, why uh, someone who had been convic- convicted, excuse me, of being an accessory to uh, the, the sexual assault and murder of a, of a child uh, was in a what they called a minimum security facility, a healing lodge in uh, in, or in Saskatchewan rather. And what the government maintains is a medium security facility. So one one technical correction here before we get too far into it. Um, let's not talk too much about the details of the case. We're obviously not the most read up. Um, but it's not an accessory if that's even a charge. It's of first degree murder. Okay, well, my like, mistake then. Point, point blank. Okay. So it's not a lesser offense. Okay, no, no, than, yeah. All right, fair than, enough. Than first degree murder. Sure. Um, start off with your thoughts and then I'm going to... Yeah, and then I'm going to bridge into what I think is a more interesting conversation. Well, okay, so I think I think your point is that we're going to go to is interesting and compelling. I think it's worth talking about. I just yeah, I mean we will get there. I just think that I personally find that you know you have a lot of calls uh, by conservatives and sort of right leaning liberals these days about about the concept of mob justice and how uh, yelling at people is no substitute for due process. I personally think this person's crimes are heinous. I think that's obviously not... I would go further, in fact, than, than our uh, public safety minister who called it bad practices. Oof. <laughs> I'll, I'll give him some... Like, honestly, like I feel like he kind of got ambushed on that one there a little bit, maybe, because I, I don't think anybody w- who like thought about it for five seconds would have said that. So I'll, I'll just mulligan Ralph on that one. Um, but, like... The heinousness of the crime aside, like I think the way you don't design a justice system... Is that you have uh, people yell at the prime minister in question period about whether someone belongs in a certain class of facility or not. I think that's not a super healthy way to run a justice system. Uh, And I think people who typically are like, well, why don't we have a... Okay, I know we said we wouldn't talk about it. But uh, the same people who are saying that perhaps a certain certain member of uh, the judicial system in the U.S. Are, is entitled to due process are saying a very different thing here. So, I don't know. I think the whole approach of this is really, really, really gross. And I, I think it's like... Let, let me take an axe it, to your argument. No, well, let me let me continue a bit. It's basically... Besides the, the sort of, like, philosophical notion of, like, the, the mob justice thing, which I think is worrying. You also have just the sort of luridness of what they're going off of in question period, which to me sounds like they're basically like question period executive producer Dick Wolf. Like it's SVU episode, like every time you tune in to uh, tune in at 2.15. And I think that's just, it's like, it's gross. Like I think it's really nasty for the first conservatives to just go down this road. I think it's not really helpful to anyone. I get that they are, they're going to get some meaty fundraising hits off of it, but like, I don't know. I'm usually not a discourse troll, and like I, I don't really care that much about civility. I don't think it's that important. All right, but let me. Uh, I think this is not the way to go. Let me let me interject here with sure. uh, I, what I think are a few additional critical perspectives here. Um, number one, 
one of what I think the important reorientations of the criminal justice system that occurred under the Harper government was the putting of victims at the center. And the point of this was to give victims of crime a greater voice in proceedings, essentially from start to finish. And that is what all of this, I think, is spawning out of. It's uh, the young girl's family. Yeah. Who, uh, I don't know this for certain, but it's likely as part of the uh, Victims Charter or Victims Bill of Rights. I can't remember how it was styled. Um, that they were notified of this change yep, in that, classification. I think that's the case, yes. Um, and so what you're calling mob justice here is like, you know, it's, it has been elevated to the level of the uh, Parliament of Canada, but in sentencing, in many other parts of the judicial system for a very long time, have we had input from the public, victim impact statements, yep. things along and those I lines. I think that's all legitimate because it I, goes through I, a system of I due process. I see this as yeah. roughly um, the same thing, just you know, elevated to a louder voice and, sure, and, push, yes, and pushing a little harder. I, I think there are unique circumstances here. The fact that this individual is being moved to a facility where children are going to be around is highly problematic. Yeah. And I think the decision is not a judicial decision. We're not, we're not talking about the separation of um, branches of government here. It's a decision uh, delegated to Correctional Services yeah. Canada through you know a long-standing policy no i totally accept that and like i i I understand that that is the case and that the you know the justice department or sorry the public safety department through correctional services like does have the authority to to do these things i and i agree that the the victim impact stuff is is legitimate and fine i just think using a week's worth and like if they had raised it one day and like done a couple questions the government says okay yeah like you know sort of we will figure that shit out and then you move on. Except, I think is like except, fine. Except the government hasn't done that. No, I agree. But I think the the week's worth of like lurid questions about like graphic details of the murder is like just like obviously at that point your concern is something else. I I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think if they are pushing as hard as they possibly can, and the response from the government is as tepid. Yes. And disingenuous. Well, okay, let's just pivot to your thing now, because I think that's the elephant in the room at this point. Yeah, so uh, public safety minister directed correctional services to essentially review the file. Yeah. And from some of the comments by the new commissioner, she said, oh, I, you know, I think we made the right, I, I think we made the right call, but, you know, we'll review the file. Um, meanwhile, DOJ or a DOJ representative at Public Safety or at Correctional Services wrote up a legal opinion um, that was given to the minister's office, advice the minister, something that you know would usually be very, very uh, secret, um, and that was handed to media as a defense for Goodale's actions here. And, and what that effectively said was that the minister cannot interfere in uh, decision making in terms of individual cases. This is highly problematic well, for several it's reasons. Technically correct, which, as we all know, is the best kind of correct. Well, that's what's problematic yeah. about it: is whether or not the liberals asked for something, you know, very, very specific, or if they asked the broad question here. I think is where the department comes back with their technically correct answer. Mm -hmm. But what clearly didn't happen here was that the department put on their thinking cap and said how can we provide solutions for the minister to perhaps ameliorate this case? Yeah. So this is an instance where the department acts sort of with inertia, looking to defend the status quo yeah. and their own decision-making. They yeah. say, no, minister, you, you can't possibly interfere in this. This is the case of one individual. You may simply ask us to uh review the case once and if we say no case closed yeah that is not the case the minister has reasonably broad discretion as, as we talked about uh on yeah. the episode with andrew but, well to clarify it is the case for individual cases but yes and broad your... policy making yes. authorities for instance and andrew was talking about this on twitter uh that the minister can say 
No one accused of first, or no one convicted, rather, of yeah. first degree murder. Or just crime. Should yeah. be housed in a facility where children may be present. Yeah. Period. That just seems like, and I'm surprised that's not already or, a thing. Or, or some iteration of that. <laughs> yeah. That would apply not only to her case, but to perhaps, you know, a handful of others across Canada. Yeah. Um, is this an overbroad tightening of the screws that will have, like, bad ramifications across no no it, it's no. a very common sense measure i am that genu- that would I, yeah. that would provide victims in this case i'm genuinely with, surprised that is not already a rule <laughs> with with a sense of relief and probably right some wrongs to try and stand behind process here as goodell has done yeah no say, that, I, that's this is yes. about reintegration to the community this is the decision that was made by corrections here's the let me explain the process behind it rather than saying yes we understand the rightful outcry of families and victims here. The fact that virtually all uh, escapes from prison in Canada are from, well, at least all federal escapes are essentially from uh, minimum security facilities. Yeah, and instead, the liberals have used partisan rhetoric. um, Okay, well, well, they're not the only ones there, but... No, but in their response, they're saying, oh, we're so horrified you're saying that, and then they use, like, the worst spin imaginable. Sure. Misquotes. Um, factual, I mean, it's factually question, it's question misleading period, statements. So. Yeah, but with something like this, if you're going to respond genuinely, yeah, and and you're going to pretend that you're responding genuinely, don't use the spin quotes fr- coming from the lips of the prime minister himself. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm surprised that they haven't just kind of like quietly made this go away, like, in the sense of like just like I don't know. For me, the incentive structure for these things is to like make them stop yowling, and to do that. Uh, you sort of just fix the problem. Yes. And it just seems like, and this is placed your point, I think, that you've made before about uh, over-deference to the the public service. I think if you say one thing for the Harper government, they never had a good relationship with the public service, and sometimes an adversarial relationship with the public service can actually be very helpful. Other times it can be not constructive at all, but certainly when you come into a situation where you are presented with options and you say, okay, why these options and not others? Right, that's a constructive attitude to have, and it's helpful. And it seems from the outside that the liberals probably don't do that enough. So departments are creatures of inertia, like every large organization. Yes, and so if you have, uh, I mean, if you have the government, so correction service has made uh, an opinion here, and and they've done their assessment, and they've they've issued their opinion, and so that's that's what's being challenged. And if you go back to them, say. Pretty pleased will you review your opinion and make sure that, you know, all the T's were dotted on the... Yeah. (laughs) The the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. There you go. 98% of the time, unless there was gross mismanagement, they're going to come back and say, yep, we did everything by the book because that's what departments do is they do things by the book. Mm -hmm. The question isn't that. The question is, should we change the rules of the book as a result of this particular case? Yeah. And let me tell you, with corrections in particular... There are increasingly instances where you have to think of clever policy solutions for unique cases that inmates get themselves into, be it uh, Bernardo seeking conjugal visits or prisoners harassing people via Facebook um, when they're not supposed to have access to the internet or various ways. Like There's all sorts of unique situations that come out of you know individuals with a substantial amount of time on their hands, mm-hmm. um, thinking of creative ways to engage society, engage in society, uh, be problematic in various ways. Like it should be very responsive in terms of policies uh, to to respond to these yeah. cases. Um, there, there's one thing I'd like to note, and I think this is uh, a brief discussion worth having is what the hell do different security classifications in the Canadian prison system look like? Um, and during my time at Public Safety, I had the opportunity uh, to visit, essentially, uh, every level of security classification. So we, we did a little field trip day, and it started with a, uh, not a bail hearing, but a uh, uh, parole board uh, hearing. Um, And then we went to a maximum, maximum facility that was still under construction. Um, We went to a maximum in uh, in use. Uh, We went to a medium, a standard medium, a medium low, 
and a minimum. It's like a sort of a stake classification kind of situation. <laughs> you would think so. So, like, maximum is what you see on it's the TV. the Hannibal Lecter thing where, like, they have him, like, strapped to the <laughs> yeah. thing and they, like, push him out on a dolly. No, ma- maximum is exactly what you think a maximum uh, security prison would look like. I mean, there were interesting things that we learned that day about, you know, the design of prisons now with sort of triangular designs versus long straight ranges, the benefits from the corrections perspective, thing, things like that. Mm-hmm. When you get to uh, medium, that's sort of like your prison break style where like you have... As in the mid-2000s serial drama prison break. That's <laughs> yes. a deep fucking cut, man. I don't think anybody watched that show. <laughs> where you have like, this is like your standard, like what you're thinking of in terms of prison. Um, you have people sitting around playing dominoes at like metal picnic tables in the, the common area. There's three different ranges, again, in a triangular formation, because that's really best practices in terms of prison architecture. Um, but it's really when you go lower than medium. When you hit medium low, that's sort of where I was most interested uh, and sort of learned the most. It was a lot like my dorm room, frankly. Um if anyone's lived in Lister Hall at the University of Alberta, the joke while we were there was always that it was designed after a prison and like it could very well be the exact same building with the exception of none of the rooms we saw had bunk beds. In, well, Lister doesn't have bunk beds, but two, two twin beds um, where every uh, inmate or offender was given their own cell. They had very small televisions um that they could play like n64 or below on right as long as it has no like uh, internet connection wi-fi connectivity (laughs) not even i think game cubes and xbox level like didn't cut it um it was n64 and below um you know a little room personal effects but then you go into a common room and there's often a larger television uh, a kitchen area with knives albeit the knives are chained to the wall some sofas some things like that they're all enclosed. Everyone has their own room. It's a lot like college. It's a lot like college. And that's that's medium-low. And then low is... Minimum. Or, yeah, sorry. Minimum is, like... Oof. I'm trying to think, like... It's sort of like being at a hospital, really. Or, like, an old folks home. There's some notional buzzer on the door... Maybe you have to fob your way in, but not much more than that. There's sort of a desk when you first come in and you talk to someone. And then there's just people milling about. There's no fence around it. Um, you can drive in and out. There's yeah. no... And, and like that's why I say every, nearly every escape, if not every escape from the federal corrections uh, system, is from a low security. Well, because lot, you can literally... It sounds a lot less challenging. You can literally walk out the door. Um, and for those of you thinking of helicopter escapes, like the ones in Quebec, those are all in provincial prisons. Okay. Um, the, the feds usually have that stuff on lock. I see. Um, so I think they're like, so what struck me in all of this was like the degree of change between even, well, medium to medium low was huge, but fundamentally you're still within walls. Yeah. From going from anything medium to low security, yeah. huge, well, okay. so let's, huge difference. I think there's a notion that like, there's a kind of like well let me back up so this person who the conservatives are raising stink about is accused or was convicted of of first degree murder right like just a heinous crime against the child like really really bad correct that person probably does belong in a facility where she cannot just walk out um however i think like it's important to not lose sight of the fact that like our prison system kind of sucks at actually doing like part of its stated job, right? Which is the sort of corrections side of it. Um, it does not usually leave people better off than when they came in. Um, and having facilities that are like not like Foucauldian or, you know, like horrifying panopticons or like, it's like fine. I think like not everyone belongs in like the, the Hannibal Lecter like face mask and like wheeling you around on a dolly sort of level facility. I think probably the vast majority of offenders don't belong at that level. And it's like not to me shocking that like we sort of try to have a prison system where the punishment isn't the facility, right? The punishment is that you are segregated from society for some period of time, right? Like I think 
you know, you look at the sort of Scandinavian prisons and people laugh at the Norwegian prisons that look, you know, relatively comfortable. And it's like, well, just, they don't have the massive recidivism problem that North American sort of Anglo uh, societies have. And now we're going to have to have a, converse, a whole conversational corrections policy. I don't think we need to, but that's just to say that, like, I think there's been a sort of, like, what the conservatives have been kind of having their cake and eating it on this is that, like, you know, bashing the liberals on what seems to be a policy failure and refusal of the government to question its department appropriately on what their options actually are here, which I agree seems to be the case. I think there's also a little bit of like sneaking in through the back door, a little bit of like, ooh, indigenous or Aboriginal healing law just sounds kind of like some some hoodoo bullshit, right? Like, and I think you you're seeing that if you wait into the comments section, like I do. So, <laughs> yeah, about I mean, this, I mean, it's yes. like you do see a bit of why do these exist anyway? But like, I I think if people people of a uh i mean frankly i i don't i've never visited uh one of the healing lodge institutions i can't compare it to a minimum um but what i would say is like minimum is real low yeah no but minimum like, is real low but not everyone needs the hannibal lecter mask what, what i understand like, as the difference between them is essentially programming yeah. and management yeah um, that it's somewhat more outsourced than sure. the Rideau Institution yeah. or others. Because I think there's a sense of the minimum security is that it's offenders who you are at some level taking on their word, which is where the word parole comes from, by the way, for when that happens, uh, that they are not going that, to try to escape. Is that Greek? It's French. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's not like illegitimate for these things to exist. It's just that like, I yeah, obviously a first degree child murderer should probably not they're not really the target market for these kinds of things, I think, is probably fair to say. Can I uh, briefly interrupt this? Because perhaps I'm notably distracted of my, by my cell phone going off. Sure. Uh, reportedly, the old NAFTA deal might be done here. Oh, yeah? CTV News has learned that Kevin is meeting tonight at 10 p.m. Ministers in Ottawa will attend in person, while others will call in by phone. Wow. 10 p.m. on a Sunday. Uh, 10 p.m. on a Sunday. Call in by phone. Can we talk about that for a minute? Sure. How do you call into a cabinet meeting by phone? Uh, I presume they have a line. Who has a line? Like there's a room and the room has a line. So you're your minister John Wilkinson. You're you're asleep at home in British well, Columbia. It's 7 p.m. There. Thank you for that. <laughs> now, I, w- I was going to remark on uh, secret plus level phones. Yeah. Are a cr- hey, is, is Rudy there? <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sorry. I think I have the wrong number. <laughs> secret plus level phones are often in uh, either departmental facilities or MROs, Minister of Regional Offices across Canada. Yeah. Um, they're in essentially every major city. Yeah. And they have one secret phone. Which is a hell of a pain in the ass device to use. Um, I won't say much more about it, but everyone has to scramble to their nearest secret phone, secret enabled phone for the secret press conference or the secret uh, NAFTA update. Yeah, you can't just have it like on speaker while you're making dinner, being like, "Oh, it's good, that's good, I can hear you." Yeah, and they like typically don't install them in like ministers' homes, although there might be instances of that. Um, they're pretty cagey with where they put these things. So. Yeah, I mean, it probably like if they live really far from the regional office, maybe anyway, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But yes, point. <laughs> but to yeah, just just as a point of process here. So there was another case of ministerial deference that you wanted to bring up, or ministerial over deference. Yeah. So this was uh, old Seamus O'Regan. Um, so again, not going to get into the uh, the specifics of the case, um, but. Uh, roughly what it was, was there was a uh, veterans Veterans activist activist who had a disagreement with the minister in the minister's office or the minister in the department about the framing of the uh, veterans benefits for life plan and to whether or not it would uh, constitute more or less benefits under a previous model versus under this model, etc. Um, the individual in question felt like the minister had slandered him mm-hmm. um, and so brought a case forward against the minister in the department um, for libel. Uh, I guess, yeah. yeah. D- don't at me, lawyers. Defamation, the, libel. Yeah, yeah. You get the v- versus one's oral, one's whatever. No, it's only the case in the U.S. Um, no. Um, and so the minister's response when asked about this by media later was 
So the department eventually fought it on the grounds of the anti-slap, uh, Ontario's anti-slap, which is strategic litigation against public participation, essentially saying that you are trying to sue me to prevent me from engaging in uh, public discourse. In a legitimate kind of way. Le- yeah. Legitimate public discourse, criticism of yeah. XYZ. Yeah. Um, and the minister's response, oh, I had... Oh, I have no say in legal strategy. That's that's all the Department of Justice. There, there's. I don't even know where the the offices are located. Like, I, I could not possibly weigh in. This is completely wrong. Um, ministers' offices are briefed on ongoing legal cases yep. on a reasonably regular basis, if not weekly. Um, well, it's not necessarily the minister's office's role to weigh in on the minutia of legal strategy, right? They certainly get high-level briefings on it, and they can certainly influence it as they see fit. Yeah. Um, to paint the DOJ or the DOJ operating through the department, their lawyers are technically all DOJ lawyers often, yes. but... Uh, embedded. Im- embedded within yeah. VAC. To say that, oh, no, we, we, have no, we have no say, we have no control over this. We're going to shirk the entire concept of ministerial responsibility because, like... The lawyers told us otherwise so, is, is absolute garbage. To me, this is... Okay, so there are a couple things at work. One of them is an outgrowth of the it's before the court's defense, uh, which is not always bullshit when used, but often is. Sure. Um, I think there's also an element of plausible deniability in this... Though that's the, that's really the, the it's before the court's thing. But there's, there's also, as you point out, there is an over-deference to advice from departments... And I think probably even more so when it's not your department, right? If the depart- if you're not a lawyer and you're a minister and the Department of Justice lawyers come in, sit down and say, okay, so here's what we're doing. I think your inclination most of the time is going to be like, okay, because it's not your, really your shop in that way. And like, I agree that like you should be a little more critical. And that's my next point is that the Department of Justice, frankly, is structurally a little bit off the chain because it has this element where when it's embedded in these departments across government, people aren't really willing to question them. Um, they are, compared to other lawyers, right, they have basically life tenure in their positions. Uh, they have unlimited resources to litigate things. They have unlimited time, functionally, to litigate things and to drag out processes and to play as much procedural hardball as they can. So... Like, it's a combination of all these things where you have, you have a sort of, like, there's an easy deniability angle, there's over-deference to uh, things outside your specialty, and there's this sort of internal culture of the Department of Justice, which I think is really unhealthy uh, at this point. I think combines to, you know, like, just, why would you worry about it if you're a minister? So, it's, it's worth noting here, the liberals, uh, early on in their mandate, in their tenure, struck the cabinet committee on litigation management Mm -hmm. and i think uh i mean off the heels of the 2015 election um a lot of the criticism of the conservatives particularly from the veterans affairs angles was about uh fighting veterans in court well and there's i would also say from from ndp land it i mean there's indigenous litigation going on all the time so like a big case was the the St. Anne's Residential School Survivors, which the Liberals have continued or even escalated, depending on how you look at it, sure. uh, over the course of their tenure as well. And so for ministers to come in and say, you know, we're going to change all of this, and then to try and step back and say, wow, the lawyers did all of this without ever asking yeah. me. I have, I, I can't possibly do anything about this. Yeah. Is absolute garbage. Yeah. Like, it, it just really is. Ministers can provide direction to settle a lawsuit, to pursue it in any which way. If they take their hands off the wheel and let DOJ drive itself, that is their conscious decision. Yeah, and it's they're accountable for it. I think yeah. it's the important thing, right? Like, it's it's your shop at the end of the day, right? Like, even if it's under the auspices of the Justice Department, so, it's on behalf of your department. I mean, one of the morals, I think, and how I would link both of these conversations, uh, Ralph Goodale and Seamus O'Regan here, I think the moral of this story really is about when you push back on your department. Uh, I mean, maybe Seamus didn't want to. Maybe Seamus was on board and he's just using the department as an easy well, way. Well, yeah, this is the problem. As an easy way to shirk uh, accountability. But in either case, if you were to go back and change this decision-making, it's the minister's office and the minister's role is not to let the department run unchecked and fight the battles that right. they do 
it is to often play the challenge function and provide direction. And yeah. if you're not doing both of those things, yeah. what what are you doing there? Honestly, like, and if, if this is this is sort of our our target demo here, but if you are a staffer, right, in the, in the government, and you are of any partisan stripe, and you're in a meeting, you know, with your minister and with with departmental officials, it is never a loss to make them walk you through their thinking. Basically, government, because it is, you know, it's it's basically a lot of people who have gone to either U of O or Carleton uh, out of a handful of programs. A lot of them are from the National Capital Region to begin with and stay there for their entire careers. There's a certain, like, cultural and corporate thinking, and it behooves people in government as representatives of a broader stripe of Canadians to ask questions that might break up that groupthink a little bit. I think that's very healthy. If you were to name... You know, the sort of demographic class of people that you're referring a to. Sort what, of, uh, what I mean, it's not really a Laurentian elite because the Ottawa's not on the river. Ah, it's, it's on the Ottawa it's River. The Utwe elite. Yeah. It doesn't quite have the same ring to it though. No, but it's not even it's not even really like an elite. It's it's like a sort of Mandarin class. <laughs> It's a little different. Um, but no, I mean, I think like challenging institutional thinking is like part of the value of political staff, which is, I think, why... It's the, I mean, it's the entire value. Polit- yeah, political yeah. staff do not go yeah. in there. I, and well, I, they're not subject matter experts, usually. Well, that that's exactly yeah. it. There are instances of uh, political staff being subject matter experts, particularly in sort of foreign economics, policy. justice, and foreign policy, yeah. a, a few of those areas. But when people look at the 23-year-old, I, I can give you a really good example of this. When I was working briefly at Global Affairs, um, one of my colleagues, I don't know, was looking at a briefing note or something along those lines and noted that one of the people she went to uh, college or college or university uh, with was working in PMO and this was going to be fed to her in PMO. And this was at the lowest level of Global Affairs and she was just sort of stunned. She's like, that person wasn't. Uh, the best and brightest of our class. She's not a subject matter expert in this field. What's she doing in PMO? Yeah. And the answer is your job in PMO is to not, or in PMO or any department, is not to out-department the department. It's not to be able to say, listen, I have a PhD in this subject matter. I know more about corrections than you. Yeah. It's to play the challenge function. Just knowing to how weigh, to ask good questions. To weigh the political risks. Yeah. To press the department on their assumptions and to challenge their own biases. Yeah. And to push it all and to take all of that and to push it in a way that benefits your government and that is reflective of the yeah. platform you're elected on. And I, th- I think that is that, that, that is the platonic ideal of what political staff do. I think the liberal government, as we've discussed extensively in this episode and in the past, are... I think in part is an overcorrection to what they saw as the sort of putative tyranny of the staffers under the, the Harper government um, are perhaps over deferential to the public service. I think that the Harper approach that was perhaps too confrontational also didn't do them any favors. And frankly, they developed their own sort of unthinking internal corporate groupthink uh, that didn't really help them, especially in the later years. So this is one of the challenges, particularly of liberal governments um let's not kid ourselves the vast majority of public servants would identify uh given the option as liberals or ndp uh, depending uh, i would say less i would say depending where but generally the institutions of government are liberal institutions the conservatives and the ndp uh if the ndp ever form government yeah have different obstacles and barriers in terms of wielding the, the levers yeah. of power. I should specify. The, the socialist revolution yeah. is not going to find its way into NDP ministers' hands yeah. by departmental advice, by the department just, you know, putting together that socialist revolution briefing note that they've been asked it's for. Yeah, that like. is a great critique of electoralism <laughs> right there. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Um, so I, I, first, I just want to jump back on what I said. There are a lot of folks who are NDP sympathetic. Not too many deputy ministers, though. Like, the senior levels are, you're sure. very correct, very, very, very liberal. I yeah, just wanted to correct myself a little bit there because I, I was a little overbroad. Um, but, yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. I think, like, if an NDP government in Canada were to, you know, take, take federal government, you would have, depending on the sort of stripe of the NDP government, if, of kind of, like, Gary Dewar-style government would have, I think, not that much trouble. Except for, like, making connections. I think if you had a sort of, like, 
Jeremy Corbyn equivalent, um, then you'd have a lot more problems just because I think there is a strong tendency to not want to rock the boat too much in the public service. And that would obviously Jeremy Corbyn, despite the, you know, whatever people think of him does genuinely have a plan that would involve changing a lot of things and how the UK is run. Um, yes. Just, yeah. Despite the fact that it would grow, you know, grow the government somewhat, it would still face tons of institutional challenges. Yes. And it's the same, it's the same on the left and the right because the status quo is pretty damn liberal. Yeah. I would say and, it's not the same in the and left that's, on the right, but yeah. Well, no, it's, I, it's I mean the same dissimilar. in terms of... Sure. Yeah, the, the scope of the challenge... Make, make your like, semantic carve out. Well, no, I don't think it's semantic. I think if you're like legitimately a like left radical government, you have a much bigger hill to climb <laughs> than like, let's cut taxes a bit. Right? Well, like, and I mean, one of the perhaps failings, if I can put it that way, of the conservative government on their mandate um, was... The failure to shrink the size of government, yeah, <laughs> over ten years, like I, it was sort of like a carbon tax. You know, it slowed yeah. things down, it slowed yeah. the growth, yeah, um, but it still grew bigger. Yeah, and at the same time, though, like I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't know that government is quote unquote too big. Like, if you ask yeah, federal, public, now we're in ideal. This no, is but just... if, no, I'm not, not from an ideological perspective. I think if you ask public federal public servants, like, do you find you have enough resources to do your job? A lot of them will say no. Like we're understaffed and we need like three more people. We have people doing the job of three people. Like some, some will say that. And if you ask others and say, yeah, I know there's a certain could, branch could, in could particular you, <laughs> for you that is marked out for special hatred. But <laughs> could you name five people who's really are in that office space scenario? What would you say you do here? Yeah, I, I think there is a lot of that. Uh, I mean, it's a distribution of resource problem against government. Um, but I think there are a lot of areas where uh, the old scissors could be. Uh, oh, I think there, there put, certainly put to are. Good but use. structurally, I think there's a phenomenon of understaffing rather we're, than overstaffing. We're going to disagree somewhat on this. That's fine. I think it's an empirical question. What else? What else is on the old uh, the old list? Well, here? we had elections, and we're going to have some elections. Tell me about the elections in your favorite provinces. In okay, so in New Brunswick, we had uh, an inconclusive election, a, a hung parliament, as the Brits would call it. Uh, which is actually, I think, much better than saying it's a minority government because that's actually super unclear. Is it a uh, constitutional crisis or not? No, I'm it's just, just, I'm just a problem. Just... Um, so you had the PCs under uh, Blaine Higgs uh, winning about 30-odd percent of the popular vote. Uh, and with that, 22 seats in the 49-seat New Brunswick legislature. You had the incumbent liberals winning uh, about 38% of the popular vote and uh, 21 seats for their trouble, so just one less than the PCs. And you also had uh, the People's Alliance, a right-wing anti-Francophone party, uh, sort of vaguely not having much more of a platform than sort of, yeah, like standard right-wing platitude and anti-francophone okay as someone who thought the people's alliance was like a faction in star wars until about like <laughs> a week ago unleash the battle droids let's let's actually dig into sure, that so what do you very, want to know when we okay a lot of people said anti-francophone okay what so do you need okay do what need does that mean lesson? in context so okay so as a product of sort of a century of anglophone domination of provincial politics you had a very popular uh liberal francophone premier louis robichaud get elected in the 1960s uh who sort of redefined the sort of political consensus for a generation or several generations there around uh official bilingualism and duality of institutions yes which is to say that you have francophone and anglophone school districts across the province uh People say, like, oh, there's the, the French and the English hospitals, and they do the same thing. That's not really true, because in most of the big cities, there's, like, there's just one, and then they just serve you in the language of your choice, for the most part, except for Moncton, where there are two, because it's a slightly bigger and more spread out city. So it's, like, it's kind of bullshit. Um, but what what I think it comes back to is when people say the old, oh, what's well, the bilingual, the only bilingual province in Canada is yeah. New Brunswick, it's because they have had a long-held policy of official bilingualism that goes above and beyond or is roughly parallel to what federal... federal... It's the same as the federal one, basically, yeah. Um, But, like, the important thing to... From a political economic perspective, it's like you have a francophone minority that's mostly in the poorer parts of the province historically, uh, the north, um, that's 
about 33% of the population. It's about a third. And then the Anglophone majority, which is most of the rest, plus obviously new Canadians, etc., uh, is the rest, and they're concentrated in the South and the East. Um, so it's just like, it's been a, a sort of compromise where the Francophone population is too small to meaningfully enfranchise economically, but big enough that you have to politically enfranchise them with language rights. Uh, like it, you sort of see the, the reverse in Quebec since the Quiet Revolution, where you have, I think, what's fair to say, like a pretty big disenfranchisement of institutionally, of anglophone quebecers in the sense that they no longer have like a lot of the institutional power they used to through the dominance of the provincial economy uh yeah so it is what it is but so the people's alliance comes from a strain of sort of right-wing thinking in the province because new brunswick's been on a long economic decline that sort of looks at the economic decline and says this is because of the french people uh, have they tried praying to the irvings harder yeah some of them do um no but the idea is basically like and this, there is a grain of truth to this, which is that it's much easier to get a job in New Brunswick if you are bilingual, and it is easier to be bilingual because you are francophone. If you are francophone, because if you come up francophone in Canada, yeah. typically your option is you learn English or you have a really hard time. I would, I would say yeah. the same plays itself out in uh, Ottawa. Yeah. Oh, often. for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's very similar in that way. Um, but it's not because French is coming from a position of strength. It's actually because it's coming from a position of weakness that that's the case. Uh, And to their credit, the PCs have had people in their caucus um, for a long time who have said the thing we have to do is to make good French education available throughout the province to everyone. And I think that is a fair and compelling point, and I would support that. The People's Alliance just basically says, like, we should just, like, take apart the institutions that give French people political representation and, like minority status in the province which i think is bad <laughs> how, how was it actually articulated in their platform is uh, it it's, they want to get rid of duality um and it, i would direct people to uh jacques Botra, who i've mentioned before in the context of new brunswick and i think is he's a cbc journalist and i think one of the best observers of new brunswick politics in the country probably the and i would also recommend people and i've recommended the book in the past uh the right fight also by him uh which is a history of sort of right-wing politics in new brunswick for the last century or so because it's important to note with the people's alliance that there was a sort of predecessor party in the 90s called the confederation of regents party that was also like populist anti-francophone that actually became official opposition in the 93 election displacing the pcs and basically they couldn't get their shit together because they were sort of one of these like we're going to run everything from the grassroots parties where basically they fell apart through infighting like within months um, because their leader didn't win a seat, but everyone else did. Uh, so there was a huge conflict over whether the leader or like the board would be calling the shots and it was a huge mess. Um, so that fell apart after a while, but now this sentiment has not obviously gone away and it's come back in this new sort of political vehicle. Uh, so anyway, that's the People's Alliance. And to come back to the electoral standings, uh, the Green Party also won three seats. Of course. Uh, so the Greens there have kind of displaced the NDP as the sort of default uh, left of the Liberals option, I think, across a lot of the province. Yeah. Not all of it, but uh, some. So they hold seats in uh, Fredericton South, uh, I think Kent North, which is on the, the north uh, coast. And uh, Memorhook Tantramar, which is actually my old writing, uh, home of Mount Allison University, so uh, among other things. why have the Greens displaced the NDP? Uh, so the NDP had a leader, um, Dominic Carty, who uh, ran the party in a <laughs> way that a lot of Congratulations, oh, Dominic Carty, yeah, on your new election. new election. Yeah, well, this sort of gives away the game. His election as a PC MLA. <laughs> uh, he ran the party, the NDP, in a way that a lot of traditional NDP supporters and activists did not like at all. And a lot of them went over to the Greens uh, for the 2014 election um, because okay. they were really distaste, like had a lot of distaste for what uh, the NDP was at that point. Um, and I think they just stuck around, and it made sense because the Greens managed to win a seat last time in Fredericton South. Um, so I think that explains why the NDP has a kind of a hill to climb ahead of it. Um, they they sort of have to make the case for why the NDP. I think if some of the chatter we've heard about the Greens mulling uh propping up a pc government is correct then i think the ndp will have very little problem making that case to their traditional constituency in the future but we will see if the greens are actually that stupid so this is a lot or nearly virtually identical to the bc election pretty similar except that you have this little right-wing party in the mix as well sure 
But in terms of getting a supply and confidence agreement and the election of a speaker, yeah. the same challenge effectively exists. Oh, for sure. Because yeah. one party can't govern if they elect a speaker from their own ranks, yeah. and the other party, if they elect a speaker from their own ranks, it's essentially a locked parliament. Yeah, there, there are only two real... Like, I think a PC People's Alliance block makes some sort of sense, and a liberal green block makes some sort of sense. I think... No one in the Liberals wants to work with the People's Alliance and probably vice versa, frankly, because the Liberals are <clears throat> have a lot of Francophone MLAs who are just... It's it's really important to convey how despised the People's Alliance is by Francophones in New Brunswick. It'd be like the federal Liberals working with the Bloc Québécois, right? <laughs> it would be something like that, yes. <laughs> um, Inconceivable. <laughs> I would have a very tough time imagining it, but... Um, really? I don't. Yeah, well, yes. Um... So those are really the only two plausible blocks, and of those, the PC People's Alliance block has one more seat. Uh, however, it's only 25, which is the one-seat majority, and then they need a speaker. So tough math, sure. uh, and we will see how that works out. I would not really be shocked to see a new election. I think the Liberals, they, they did win 8% more, the po- 6 or 8% more of the popular vote than the PCs did. I think they probably feel... Give us another kick at the can, and we can convert that more efficiently into seats. I think they're probably not wrong. They have a more inefficient vote than the PCs generally, but like not to that degree. I think this is kind of an anomaly for them. So I think if anybody's wanting for a fresh kick at the can right now, it's the Liberals. Everybody else, I mean, certainly the Greens and PA are out of money, probably, and are like, we want to hold on to our three seats, gain some profile, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And the PCs are like, we want to govern. So... Okay. So we'll see what happens there. I'd say those are the incentives. That was too much time spent on New Brunswick. <laughs> I, I needed to uh, mm. to sort of atone for when you went on the Twitter account when I was away and said, I know nothing about New Brunswick, AMA. I was like, no, no I said, I've lived there for... I know, you I've, I've, been I've, there I've been there once. You've been there once. You and did the, recommend the Titan board, which the, is a perfectly fun The Titan board in Moncton, is, or uh, yeah, in Moncton is, is very Moncton. good. Yeah. And I would also recommend Colactus if you're looking for vegetarian food. Very, my, very tasty. My one good score, story from my uh, political staffing days in Moncton was sitting around a table in sort of their city hall building meeting with uh, policing and city hall oh, officials God. about... about <laughs> an event and we were in this big glassy boardroom and uh we could see out onto the road and our rental vehicle was over time because the meeting was running late and the uh, meter maid or whatever they're called parking enforcement officer <laughs> had political correctness for cops <laughs> had just uh come up to our vehicle and so um my my colleague who was sitting there with me sort of quietly throws me the keys across the table <laughs> and I bolt out of the room uh, and sort of run out and like press the button so the person is deterred from ticketing the car I'm about to move and then when I got back in all the RCMP officers and others were quite uh, quite thrilled with that I managed to talk myself out of that ticket and everyone had been watching me from the uh, the boardroom good job so it's very good so we've got elections tomorrow the, the uh, only or... time I've successfully avoided a ticket <laughs> in my life so uh, well by the time people are listening to this it will probably be today uh, but Monday uh, what the fuck does that mean? well Monday October 1st, oh, okay. there will be an election in Quebec um, the CAC, uh, Quebec, seems likely to pull it off. Uh, oh man, does this invalidate the prediction you were bragging no, about the so. other day? No, I still you, think you, they, would, they, you wouldn't think so. They fell apart substantially. If they get a majority government, are you? Well, they are. are they you going to come onto this podcast and atone for your early celebration? Well, are they going to get a majority government with thirty percent of the vote? I think is the open question, right? Like, are they going to have the, literally the weakest majority mandate in Canadian history? Like, I think that would not really, we'll really disprove we'll what I was saying. I mean, the yeah. polls, polls could be wrong. Polls could be wrong, absolutely. Uh, but, like, I mean, at that point, it's like we're just fucking spitballing here, aren't we? <laughs> like, uh, but, yeah, seems likely that the, the CAC will end up with the most seats, whether majority or minority remains to be seen. Uh, the Liberals will run up, like, 80% totals, and uh, the writing's really strong in Montreal, as they often do. Um, and they really are the most inefficient. I mean, maybe the New Brunswick Liberals are about to top them, I guess. But uh, they are really, really inefficient uh, at turning votes into seats. Uh, the uh, Quebec City data looks like it will probably pretty much statistically tie um, the PQ in terms of popular vote. And it looks like they're going to have a pretty similar seat count. It would be catastrophic for the PQ if they got leapfrogged. 
though we will see what happens. Uh, it seems to be kind of the consensus that Lise has actually been the most impressive party leader over the course of this campaign, but that does not seem to have really done a whole lot for them. Can you explain this to... Can you explain Quebec Solidaire to everyone else in the country who's not followed Quebec politics? Who is the leader of the party? They don't really have one. Some left-wing bullshit. Yeah. So... There's a... Spo- they're co-spokespeople? Yes, co-spokespeople. Who would become premier if they won? I don't think they're really worried about that. <laughs> I think the answer is Manon Massey, but I don't know I why. I think so. Uh, but honestly, like, I think this co-social thing is like not very... I mean, I think like, our system requires someone to be in the big chair, and I think you should yes. just figure out who's going to be in the big chair and be straight about pe- with people about that. But then again, I guess she has been the face of the campaign. So they are being at least kind of straight with people on that. I don't know. It's a bit weird. But they actually are an outgrowth... Uh, uh, and the reason their color is orange, actually, is because they're, they're a spinoff of the former uh, provincial NDP. Sure. Um, there is a new provincial NDP. It hasn't really registered, unfortunately, with Quebec voters. So there you go. Um, Funny, nor is the federal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, we're doing great. We're doing great. Uh, doing great 2018. Um, yeah, so the uh, it, it came off from the former uh, Quebec NDP when the Quebec NDP elected Paul Rose as their leader. Or, yeah, actually, I think that's correct. Either as a sort of like prominent member or as leader. He, of course, was one of the, the October 1970 kidnappers. Um, so the federal NDP <laughs> felt Christ. the need to... I was, uh, I was wondering why that name sounded familiar. Yeah. So the federal NDP felt the need to sever that tie. Fair enough. Is um, he the one who went to Cuba and then came back? Uh, I think so. Served like two months in prison and then became a provincial politician? I think that's oh, correct, yes. Yeah. So, back. So, yeah. So the NDP's were like, yeah, no, that's not going to work for us. Uh, so they went off and became the Social Democratic Party of Quebec for a little bit, then merged with some other left-wing parties to be Union des Forces Progressistes in 2003, and then spun off to become Quebec Solidaire with another merger, and then also recently merged with Option Nationale last year, which is a hardline uh, separatist party. So now that's... Good. Yeah, so, th- which is weird to me that they've doubled down on the separatism when I think the core of their appeal is being left-wing. Uh, but there you go. I, I don't know really why they doubled down on that, but there you go. I was told that it brought with them um, a lot of very talented uh, Quebec City area activists uh, who were sort of around the uh, uh, Jean-Martin Ossin sort of circle uh, in the Of PQ. course, who, who could forget? <laughs> but it's a bit of a head-scratcher for me because it seems to me like a lot of their, their growth territory is uh, left-leaning federalists who I've, really left-leaning federalists have no real option if they're like not holding their nose about something or another so it's it seems like an untapped market but what do i know all right with 24 hours left let's leave it there indeed um so that you don't make any other poor predictions <laughs> this, this is the i'm looking after your credibility um next up and our, our final subject here is the governor general I mean, Ottawa has been somewhat abuzz, and media has been certainly been abuzz with articles about... Well, a big article. Let's give credit where credit's due here. No, it's been like, well, a big... Oh, was, yeah. Okay, no, there's yeah, been yeah, several. Yeah, yeah, over the court, yeah, sure. From there's been some warning signs. Winnipeg Free Press, National Post, yeah. I think the Globe may have gotten in on it a little late here, but it's largely been uh, National Post Yeah, carrying. the Post had a big piece. I think it was Brian Platt and... Was it uh, Marie Daniel Smith? I think it was Marie yeah. Daniel Smith. Um, I think there's been several pieces now. Uh, there's a lot of problematic things that have come out. Uh, the two that struck me the most was the Governor General not wanting to give royal assent to a bill because it was inconvenient to her. Uh, and so there was this anecdote about C45, which might ring a few bells if you're a listener of the podcast. Okay, let, let me rephrase that slightly because it wasn't that she wasn't going to give royal assent to it. It's that she didn't want to do it in person. Or rather in public in a big ceremony as she's called upon to do a couple times a year uh, because it had been passed kind of like as we covered very very closely uh, its passage was somewhat fraught so she didn't appreciate uh, quote unquote having her schedule altered or at the last minute uh, so sure yeah um, so I think it was Ivan. I mean, Iveson and others. John Iveson uh, of the National Post. <laughs> yes. Just people who aren't Wikipedias. Have now written on this. And I think, I mean, I think a lot of very good points have been made. I thought the fact that 
process-wise that the Liberals had taken this out of the hands of a formal, or the appointment of the Governor General out of the hands of a formal selection committee. Which is funny, because they put everything else into the hands of a formal selection committee. (laughs) As was established under the Harper government, uh, when they ultimately selected David Johnson. Yeah, that Um, well-remembered, well-loved figure. Yes. Talk about designed by committee. (laughs) (laughs) Who who did a bang-up job. Uh, Uh, Yeah, sure, (laughs) if you you say so. (laughs) I think he did a fantastic job. I mean, okay. Do you have? I have literally no opinion on the guy. <laughs> okay, I have I have many opinions. Um, where instead of being vetted by this committee and sort of through this the process that had been established and worked well, it went through LRB, the Limited Review of Books. <laughs> yes, Liberal Research Bureau. Oh, the fact that LRB apparently was tasked with leading vetting. Of the governor general is a bit weird. Bewildering. Yeah, that's a bit strange. (laughs) Like, that's like having liberal partisans uh, lead the vetting of our Supreme Court judges. Like, it makes... No, I mean, it's... It's analogous, let's put it that way. It is perhaps... The governor general has a little less power, but yeah. Or arguably more important, but... Take, make, make what you will the, the, for, the formal role of the head of state. Um, the head of state, nonetheless. Um, so to put in context what LRB is, LRB is the partisan wing of the Liberal Party that's funded by... The partisan wing of the Liberal Party, as or, opposed to the non-partisan <laughs> wing. <laughs> the partisan wing of the Liberals' parliamentary... Apparatus. Apparatus. Yeah. Um, that's funded through parliamentary resources... But that makes communication products, that does op- opposition research. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's the equivalent what else, what else of OLO. They, they make videos. Yeah. It's the equivalent of OLO. It's just that when you're in government, you don't rely on your parliamentary resources as much for the obvious reason that you have the public service. I mean, sort of. OLO is a little different. Uh, OLO under Shear has sort of amalgamated CRG, which was formerly the Conservative Resource Group, which is what it's called under government into LO, but there are two distinct budgets, mm-hmm. um, which are important for purposes of the Conflict of Interest right. uh, Act. Yeah, the NDP just has the leader's office, and that's it. Uh, yes, because you don't have a formal leader's office budget. You only have a research budget. I think that is correct. Yes. Or it may be a much smaller leader's office budget, but at any rate, the scale It's not an institution. The leader of the third party, no. their office is not no, no, recognized yeah, right. in parliamentary procedure and I process. I think they, they are recognized as being a party leader, and they get a small amount, but the sure. leader of the official opposition gets, gets a lot more. substantially yes. more. It's, yeah. it's a very different uh, yeah, leader of a recognized party, I think. Structure. Yeah, something. Um, so all that to say, it became a very partisan process um somewhat laughably partisan and now the the chickens have come home to roost well well, the funny thing with her is that she was originally interested in having a ambassadorial appointment to somewhere in western europe and they were like no but are you interested in being governor general which to me if i go to them and i'm like i'd like to live in madrid please and they're like (laughs) can i interest you in ottawa i'd be like you know what? I think I'll stick with Madrid. Thanks. Like There are also some other details that jumped out to me, such as that the essentially number two at Rideau Hall was a friend slash former acquaintance colleague. I don't know what the correct title was of Julie Payette um, and not someone from Rideau Hall. So the liberals created a number three position. <laughs> To put in someone from Rito Hall who knew how to run Rito Hall into the chain of command. Good. Like always a good sign when you have to sort of just These things yeah. aren't good, especially when you when you have to run an institution like Rito Hall that is governed by like Protocol. people people who literal jobs are to design seals and crests and very ridiculous formal yes. like colonial vestigious apparatuses and honorifics like i like the heraldry office they have yeah that's exactly what i'm talking about do you like they imagine they're just like sketching like badass griffins holding swords all day that is what i was do you think this works better with an argent or a ghouls (laughs) i have definitely looked at the uh, job descriptions for the herald postings but they all have titles it's like the herald of oh because they have their own heraldry the herald of the mountains or something i I can't remember yeah Yeah, there's like a regional herald you go on like the government of canada job postings you're like okay I'm, I'm looking for something between fifty and uh, two hundred thousand dollars. Like 
How about the Herald of the Clouds? Like, I love it. <laughs> must be able to draw heraldic crests, intimate detail. Like, this is going to be such a gerrymandered position. I'm sure they already have some intern in mind from the FSWEP program. Do you think? No, come on, dude. They're not getting this from the FSWEP. They're getting no. these people from tubes. So no. <laughs> That's just a jab at federal government hiring generally. Fair enough. All right, let's leave it there. I okay. have uh, NAFTA details to follow. Okay. All right, uh, I will just say that J. Payette sounds a lot cooler and that from this National Post article. She sounds like a cool person who would be fun to hang out with. And for that reason, I endorse her renomination as Governor General. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Bye, everyone. <laughs>